Hey, good morning, Bristol. How are you doing? I've got a few people. That's good. Good morning, City Church Bristol. Much better. There we go. It's great. It's great to see so many faces here this morning. It's brilliant as I walked in just to a completely packed room. So uh, it's a real treat to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, my name's uh, Jamie. I lead the, the Bradley Stokes site up in the far north where it's currently... Sn- no, it's not snowing, but it, it, is, it is far north up there. Um, but it's an absolute pleasure to be with you guys this morning and opening our new series called Ask God. I was actually quite tempted. I, I, I took the M32 route down into, into town on the way through, and uh, there's a great question. I don't know if you've seen this. It has been put out over one of the, uh, the kind of motorway bridges there, which said, uh, what would it be like if Bristolians ran the world? I was like, well, let's talk about that for 30 minutes. So <laughs> that'll be interesting. But um, we're going to be talking at the first of our series this morning, looking at, well, how can we even know that God exists? And um, I, I spent the first half of my life not believing really in any existence of God at all. Uh, my, the, 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 the home, well, the homes actually I grew up in were... Um, we're in a funny kind of way very spiritual. My mum uh, at the time worked for a, a publishing house in the New Age movement. So you name it, she knew about it. She had the kind of the, 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 the philosophy and the practice and there was crystals everywhere in our house and tarot cards and the whole, the whole piece. Um, after my parents separated, my dad actually got quite heavily into Zen Buddhism for a while. He, spent, he took a couple of trips out to a monastery in Japan and did, did the whole uh, kind of Buddhist thing, and um, but to be honest, for, for most of my life, I had been pretty agnostic. Uh, it hadn't had much of an effect on me, and I didn't have a, any huge beef with it. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any massive objections, but particularly when it came to organised religion, I, I just kind of washed over me really. And um, I, I wonder if, in many ways, actually, that wasn't quite a good thing. Uh, I think there's, there's so much, isn't there, that, that passes for Christianity and passes for, for church these days that actually just seems a, a million miles away from the kind of culture and teaching that Jesus had of loving one another 2,000 years ago. So maybe, I, maybe it was helpful for me, I don't know, that I didn't kind of come into the world with all that baggage, who knows. But um, I, I went to a Church of England uh, school when I was younger, and um, I'm pretty sure I was the only kid in my class that hadn't been christened as a, as a baby. There, there might have been one or two others, but they slipped under the radar if they did. And um, of, of course, if you get christened, then eventually they want you to get confirmed, right? And, uh, and I remember, as, as I kind of progressed up through the year groups at school, eventually it kind of gets, it's your year group's turn to get done. And... Um, I remember this rather uh, ominous conversation with my RE teacher at the time. It was a lovely, lovely lady, and she was, she was kind of convincing me that I could, I could get the baptism and the confirmation done in this one big kind of super ceremony. And um, I, I told her politely, thank you very much, but I was quite all right. Um, and, and it wasn't that I had some massive issue with the Bible or I didn't, didn't have any major kind of objections to, you know, the big G. I, so I just... Didn't believe in the guy. Sorry, <laughs> and um, and I remember she kind of came up back at me and said, "Well, um, perhaps you should consider 
you know, getting baptized and confirmed anyway. Just, just because you might decide you want to do it when you're an older teenager, and there's so much peer pressure, you know, to, if you just get it done now, then you won't have to kind of face that when you're older. <laughs> I just, I sort of looked to like, what? <laughs> like, really? Seriously? Is that, is that what you've got for me? Well, um, here I am, <laughs> quite, quite a few years on now, and uh, you'll be pleased to know I have been baptized, and here I am leading a church, and, and I'm pretty convinced that, that God is real. And um, Christianity, I've been talking a lot about Bradley Stoke recently, I think, I think we overcomplicate our faith often a lot, and I think Christianity really rests on three very basic suppositions. First of all, that, that God exists. And secondly, that He loves us. And thirdly, that He's made a way that actually we can know Him. Now, I'm aware I've just put out three stonkingly big <laughs> suppositions there. That God, God exists, firstly, and that He loves us, which is a, a major step on from the first one, and that He's made it possible for us to know Him. And really what I want to drill down on this morning is actually, are those three massive statements actually justifiable? Because obviously a great number of people would say, no, not really. Richard Dawkins, who um, many of you may have read some of his works, he he, he said this, he said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. And, and I think we, we have this, this phrase in our society, don't we? We have this phrase, blind faith. It's this, it's this idea that actually we, we, can, we can take a bypass on looking at facts and, and evidence and actually grapple with realities, and we can kind of park that over in one corner, and it gives us an excuse to kind of just, just go for something blindly. He continues, he says, faith is belief in spite of, and even perhaps sometimes because of, the lack of evidence. It's that kind of notion of the blindness of faith that he objects to. The Bible actually has its own definition of faith. If you were to look in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it kind of spells out pretty clearly what faith is. It says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Sub- a substance, if something has substance, it's material, isn't it? It's, you know, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can see it, you can examine it. It's got substance to it. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So actually, God's definition, the Bible's definition of faith, almost sits in, ex- in exact opposition to our perception in society of, of, of faith being blind. And I want to put it to you this morning that actually having a faith in God can be not blind. Actually, it mustn't be blind. That actually we can have a a substantive faith based on two things. Firstly, on the weight of objective evidence. And we can draw from many, many different fields, many, many spheres of life, and we can kind of build piece upon piece, a very compelling picture based on hard evidence that that accumulates to give us a a sense of the reality of God's existence. 
And secondly, we can do that based on, on subjective evidence, on the, the experience that, that I would share, I know many of you in this room share, and, and many millions of Christians around the world share, that actually we, we do know God and experience Him. And, and yes, that's a, of course it's a subjective thing, but actually it's, it's a reality that's very reasonable and compelling. So, I want to talk about, let's, let's just examine the objective evidence first. I think, obviously, what, what, if someone asks you for a piece of evidence for anything in life, you, we need to understand what, what kind of evidence is going to satisfy them. I think there's, there's, there's many different kinds of evidences, aren't they? So, for example, if a, a mathematical proof will be very different in its nature to the kind of evidence that can be gleaned from testing in a laboratory. They're going to be very different in their, in their form. Or a, 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 a logical, philosophical deduction will look very different from the kind of evidence that's, that's presented in court. And what I want to do is I want to look at four of the greatest thinkers, some from today and, and, and some from history, who have all, and have all been giants in their field. And actually, each one of them has examined a different facet of evidence and come to the conclusion that, in fact, God exists. And what I want to do is look, well, well for them, what, 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 what kind of evidence was it that was particularly compelling that led them on a journey from disbelief into faith? The first um, was a very interesting guy. I, I recently dipped back into his book that I read quite some time ago called Anthony Flew. Uh, many of us will probably be familiar with the, the you know, people like Sam Harris and, and Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitchens and the like, who in recent years have become very, very well-known, very prolific writers and kind of almost household names as celebrity atheists. And um, I think before that whole kind of world blew up, um, probably the most well-known uh, atheist, at least in the Western world, was a chap called Anthony Flew. And... Um, he, he wrote quite prolifically, um, and he debated all over the world, arguing, you know, quite persuasively in some cases, against the existence of God. And um, then in 2007, when he announced to the world that he'd changed his mind, uh, it, it caused some, something of a storm. And um, he published a book, it's a, it's a great little book actually, I'd, I'd recommend you can, you can get it out there on Amazon quite easily, called There Is a God how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And um, he kind of explains a lot of his U-turn in this book. And he lays out a number of arguments, mostly drawn from, from the kind of the world of the sciences. But for him, he said, the thing that was really most compelling was looking at recent advances in our understanding of DNA. He said this, he says, I now believe there is a God... I now think the evidence does point to a creative intelligence, almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that it's shown, almost by the unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. In other words, we know... Because we now know what we do, or at least we're beginning to understand what we now understand about the, the complexity, the interconnectedness of the DNA that's inside every one of us, it's becoming increasingly unreasonable 
to believe that such a thing could possibly come about by chance. One of the great heroes of history, arguably the greatest physicist of all time, maybe one of the greatest scientists of all time, was a guy called Isaac Newton, I'm sure you all know. And um, what many people don't know is that actually he was, he was a very, very committed believer. He loved the Bible, he loved God, and he actually wrote much more about theology than he did about science. And um, probably unsurprisingly for him, it was his understanding of the, of the fine-tuning of the solar system and, and the universe that for him was the most compelling um, thing. And um, I, I love this story. I've told this story a number of times. I dearly hope it's true. It's kind of one of these things that you kind of hope isn't apocryphal. I've done a bit of digging. I, I, I think it is. Even if it isn't, then you, the, 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 the premise of it still stands, and I'm sure he would re- very much resonate with the heart of it. And the story goes that he used to have a, a professor friend who was very much an agnostic, and uh, he used to kind of spar with him and debate with him, and he was getting increasingly frustrated with, the, with, with some of the, the kind of things that he was coming back at him with. And eventually he commissioned... Uh, a, a craftsman, a master craftsman, to produce for him an exquisite, ornate, scale model of the solar system as, as best they knew it at the time. And, you know, obviously such a thing probably would have pr- been produced at massive expense. It would have taken weeks and weeks to produce. And, and finally this thing turned up and he kind of gives it pride of place on his dining room table. This just magnificent specimen of art and science and craftsmanship and Sooner or later, of course, his, his, his friend comes around and, and obviously, immediately, he's kind of drawn to this, this magnificent thing and he starts examining it and he's like, who, who made this? And Isaac Newton and his typically dry wits and nobody, I'm paraphrasing the story, and, uh, and he begins to get a bit irked and he's like, what are you talking about? Who, like, who did this? This is, this is exquisite. And Isaac Newton says, no, it just turned up on my, on my kitchen, on my <laughs> dining room table. It just appeared out of thin air. <laughs> he began to figure out after a while, of course, that he was playing with him. And he said, listen, of course it's preposterous that such a, such a beautiful, intricately complex work of art could miraculously appear on my table. But you've been trying to convince me all this time that the actual solar system came about as a part of a cosmic accident. It's not, it's not realistic. He would say design always demands a designer. And of course, actually, science has moved on massively since Newton Day. The more we discover, the more far-fetched it becomes to believe that the universe came apart or came about as a result of an accident. This is Anthony Flew again. He says, well, just take the basic laws of physics. It's been calculated that if the value of even one of the fundamental constants, the speed of light or the mass of an electron, had been to the slightest degree different, no planet capable of permitting the evolution of human life could have formed. Another much more modern hero (coughs) um, is the world-renowned geneticist Francis Collins, he was, uh, he, he's still uh, living and, and, and working today, and he, he was responsible. He, was, uh, he led the project that, that um, had probably one of the most, the greatest scientific breakthroughs of our time, the, the, the mapping of the human genome. 
And um, it was interesting, as I read more about him, for him it wasn't the biological evidence initially that kind of steered him on a path towards faith in God. For him, actually, he was grappling with evidence from, from philosophy and, and logic. And he talks about this, this concept of, of the moral law of the universe. In other words, we live in a world that, that seems to be governed by a certain number of, of, of moral principles and parameters. And of course, if you go to different cultures and different times and different locations, these will vary slightly. But, but deep down in all of us, there seems to be that intrinsic sense of right and wrong. You've probably had that, that sense maybe when someone's betrayed you or let you down or, or, or taken something from you. Actually, whatever your beliefs about morality or anything else, you, you feel a sense of being wronged in that moment. That's, that's universal. Actually, everybody in every culture has some kind of inbuilt moral compass, however messed up it might be. And, and actually, we, we have a sense of moral duty and moral responsibility. Gandhi said, mankind is one. We're, we're all the same, effectively, seeing we are all equally subject to this moral law. And we have to ask ourselves the question, well, where does this come from? So if, if, if the universe were amoral, if the universe just came about accidentally as a result of some chemical and physical processes, then actually there couldn't be an inbuilt universal sense of right and wrong. That wouldn't be possible. And the fact that this so-called moral law is sort of so blindingly obvious to all of us points actually to a moral law giver, someone who designs those parameters. For Francis Collins, this, this was the, the philosophical evidence, the philosophical grapple that first opened his mind to the existence of God. And then we get someone maybe more well-known to us, at least if you enjoy reading children's books, the, the, the theologian and writer C.S. Lewis and uh, he, he described himself as really the most reluctant convert. If you kind of read his story, you kind of get the impression he was dragged kicking and screaming into a, a faith in Jesus. And what really got him there was, for, for almost all of his life, he had kind of been governed by what we call the Socratic principle from, uh, from Plato's Republic, it, which, which basically says you, you need to follow the argument wherever it leads. Or I suppose you might say, follow the evidence trail wherever it leads. And that actually, even if, even if it was completely somewhere that, that, that's uncomfortable to you or far away from what you presumed, actually you, you, you have a duty to end up where the evidence takes you. And for him, bizarrely, unexpectedly, it led to a joyful relationship with Jesus. And for him, the most compelling thing, he would say, out of, out of many different things, was the evidence from within the Bible, I've just got the Gospel of John here, the evidence from within the whole Bible for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, you, you probably at this point go, whoa, 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 hang on, hold on there, Jamie, just, just back it up again. Uh, <laughs> evidence from within the Bible. I, I've talked to many people over the years who would say, well, I'm open, you know, I'm open to the possibility of there being a God, but if, and if there is a God, that would be in spite of the Bible, not, not because of it. I mean, it's just full of fairy tales, right? It's full, it's full of contradictions. And to my amazing discovery, and to C.S. Lewis's amazing discovery, no, not really. And one of the, one of the things that 
It kind of strikes me. I've been reading the Bible for, I don't know what, 15, 16, 17, 18 years now. And one of the things that really blows me away is that this is a a book that has been written by dozens of different authors who, for the most part, didn't know each other. They'd written over the span of thousands of years in so many different cultures, some of the richest, some of the poorest people who'd ever lived, who in most cases didn't have access to each other's material to compare. And yet somehow it hangs together so beautifully and tells one compelling narrative story. I I don't even know how you do that. To to, to me, as, as I read the scripture, one of the things that makes it so compelling is that it isn't full of fairy tales and contradictions. To me, that seems almost borderline miraculous. I, I used to think it was, it was common knowledge that the Bible's full of contradictions. You read something and you turn the page and it would say something completely different and you'd just be thinking. Of course, I hadn't checked here. I hadn't actually read the Bible at all. I just, I just kind of assumed, well, everyone knows that, don't they? And certainly, if you give it a cursory glance, you can, you can spot some things that on the surface seem to be in contradiction to one another. I think probably if you ask somebody, if you really press them on it and say, well, you know, what are you talking about then? Most people will probably come to the gospel, the contrasting gospel accounts of of the resurrection of Jesus. So there's these, these four kind of little biographical sketches that four different friends of Jesus wrote, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And, um, that, that, those guys were from very different backgrounds, very different cultures, and, and they wrote from their own unique perspective and their experience. You know, certain ones of them were around for different things, or they saw things from a different angle, and, and of course they wrote what, you know, what was true from their perspective. And I think when you put these things side by side, you can try and make a case that, well, they're telling different stories then, or they're telling the story differently. There's contradiction here, but actually... You don't have to dig very far below the surface to find that's not really the case. So I'll just, we could do this all morning, but I'll give you one quick example. So um, in John's Gospel here, it says that Mary, on the morning that she came and discovered that Jesus wasn't, she, she went to the tomb, quote, whilst it was still dark. Okay, so it's pitch black and she's off. Whereas if you flick back a few pages into Mark's Gospel, he recounts the same event Mary going to the tomb, it says, while the sun was rising. And of course, you might say, okay, that's enough for me. It flat out contradicts itself. Was the, was the sun up or not? Was it dark or was it not? But actually, scratch a little bit below the surface and you think, well, actually, the, you know, it takes some time to walk from Bethany or Jerusalem through to the gravesite. And it doesn't take a great deal of time for the sun to rise in the Middle East in those days. So actually, it's perfectly legitimate for one person to be writing about the beginning of her journey, probably from the perspective of where he was literally sitting, and for another to write from another perspective. And, and actually, what C.S. Lewis found was that as he began to look with his scholarly eye through the evidence that the New Testament and other documents portrayed, actually, he came, albeit rather reluctantly at first, to believe that it's true. I'd love to go on all morning. We could look at chemistry and archaeology and history and all kinds of things that we would actually be here all day. Uh, (laughs) What I've given this morning is just a very brief overview of some huge, complex topics. But 
I guess what I'm trying to communicate is that actually there are some of the greatest minds now and in history that have made it their life's work to examine evidence and have come to the conclusion that it's true. I said that that Christianity was built on some premises, that that God existed, and, and second of all, that he loves us. How do you know if someone loves you? Ideas? I was... uh, I had a little moment in between bits of work this week, so I decided to go on WikiHow and ask it how you know if someone loves you, Um, which is never a good idea. (laughs) So here we go. The wisdom according to WikiHow. How you know if someone loves you. Number one, they ask before they steal a chip off your plate, and they don't hold it against you when you forget to ask them to steal one off theirs. Um, I like this one as well. They don't freak out if you don't text them in X amount of hours because they feel solid and confident in your relationship. But that's, that's very profound. Um, it gets a little bit better as you go down. It says they know that sometimes it's those little moments of affection, those hands under the table, the inside glances that no one else matters that will matter the most. They're also not ashamed to kiss you in public and post a selfie of it on Instagram occasionally. So there you go, all you romantic people, that's how you uh, communicate to, uh, to somebody, your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse, that, uh, that you love them very deeply. Um, <clears throat> thankfully, Jesus had some rather more profound things to say about how we know what love is. And um, if you look in his words in, in John chapter 15, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is actually, there couldn't be a greater expression of love for another person than that you would actually give your life in their place. And of course, the most profound thing about this, although the disciples didn't really understand it fully at the time when they were listening to him say this, was that actually he was very much talking about his own death in their place, which would happen just a few hours later. One of the most amazing things, if you read through the kind of biographical accounts of Jesus' life, is that how often he talked about his death before it happened. He's kind of, he was like a dog with a bone, almost. He started freaking the disciples out on many times, because they just didn't understand where he was going with it. That he, he was talking about being intentional about dying in the place of other people. This was how he was going to express his great love for mankind, is that he was going to die, and that, that didn't compute for them. I don't know if you've ever actually thought how, what a bizarre statement that is. If you imagine, imagine it's Valentine's Day and next year, and I say to Debbie, my love, I, um, I, I was going to get you 12 red roses, but it just didn't seem, you know, it didn't seem enough to convey the depth of my, my delight in you, and... I was going to take you out to that new Michelin star restaurant, and, but you, that, even that would just fall pitifully short. That I, there's just such a love in me, I can't express it to you. There's only one thing for it. I'm going to have to die. <laughs> Is that, what planet? <laughs> that does not make any sense to express your love for another person through dying. That, that, that's, have you ever thought about that, that? You know, Jesus loves you, man. He died for you. What? Have you ever thought about that statement? Listen, the only logical reason why dying would ever be a valid expression of love for another person would be as if that person is in great 
danger. Yeah? So if I, if Ben was, he always picks on people in sermons, I'm going to pick on you. (laughs) If Ben was idly standing in front of a passing freight train, and I knew I had a split second to make a decision whether I love my elder enough to barge him out of the way and take the full force of the blow myself, sacrificing myself in his place. Well, I think that could probably be a legitimate, heroic, sacrificial demonstration of love. Don't get your hopes up, mate. (laughs) But in any other scenario, it's bonkers. It's complete bonkers. And so when Jesus was trying to explain this, he he was trying in so many different ways to explain to his followers what what it meant for him to die. He He was trying to explain, actually, he was coming to rescue us. He was the rescuer that comes in to rescue us from danger. What, what, what danger are we talking about? He said the danger is, is the consequences of our sin. I think of sin. What's sin? What is that? Why, why does that matter? I think the world is kind of split into two groups of people. I don't know if you've noticed this. It was true in Jesus' day. I'm pretty sure it's true now. That First of all, you have your kind of your out-and-out sinners. You know, they are going to squeeze every drop of juice out of life they possibly can. You know, they are going to party as hard as they can and drink as much as they can and have as much illicit sex and drugs and everything else as they can indulge themselves in. doesn't matter if it's good or bad. doesn't matter if it hurts other people, hurts them, whatever. They're just going to, they're going to go for it. Like, that's almost like a value that they're just going to live life to the max. And then you have this other group of people. Some of them are religious. Some of them are not in the slightest bit religious. But, you know, they're, they're honestly, they, they live or they try and live by their values. You know, they, they want to be right upstanding members of society. They don't use a disposable coffee cup. You know, they're, they're, they're there. They, they try and live by those virtues and those values. And they just want to do what is right and ethical. And yet, if you if they were honest with you, and probably oftentimes they wouldn't be, but if you were to scratch below the surface under that kind of exterior that they've put out to the world, you'd find a world of compromise and perversion and dishonesty and betrayal and selfishness and all the rest. And we're kind of sat there squirming in our seats because we kind of... uh, (laughs) Yeah. St. Paul, who was uh, one of the... the most profound New Testament writers. He was somebody in who his kind of pre-conversion life had been desperately religious, deeply, deeply religious. And, and, and he kind of, he got into this philosophical musing in the book of Romans where he was grappling with this stuff of desperately believing in what was good and wanting to do what was good and, you know, striving with every fiber of his being to do what is good. And yet he said there's, there's almost like this invisible force, this invisible power that seems to get a hold of every single one of us. He called it sin. And it just sort of drags us down into degradation whenever we're trying to do the right thing. And I think that's probably what makes the loud and proud sinner group of the world so annoyed, isn't it? They're like, well, no one is doing the right thing anyway. No one is doing good. Yeah, okay, I'm partying hard, but you know what? At least I'm not a complete hypocrite like you guys in church over there. Maybe they're right. And whether you're the kind of the out-and-out sinner group or whether you're the bright, upstanding member of the community 
rapidly failing kind of group. Actually, Jesus says to all of us, sin matters. Sin deeply matters. Sin, he says, is, is like the barrier that cuts us off from the life that we could have, the relationship with God we could have. He says, actually, sin has a penalty. One of the most sobering statements in the Bible, one of the most difficult to grapple with, maybe we'll talk about it, I don't know, is that each one of us, wherever we come from, will stand before God and give an account of how we've lived our lives. That's a sobering thought. Whatever, whatever kind of perspectives we have in, about religion in this room are massively different, I expect. Probably one thing that unites us is that we believe in justice. That's, some, that's pretty common to us as a society. I mean, you only have to look at all the kind of furore surrounding the nomination of Justice Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court in the U.S. last week that we take issues of justice pretty seriously, don't we? And, and, and right, the rightly so. Actually, it's important to us as a society that justice is done, that we have courts and judges that will uphold justice, that if someone's done something wrong, then the wrongdoer will be penalized. If, if we don't have that simple principle working, then society starts to unravel. And so if, if, if a judge were to stand in the dock and, uh, and, and the defendant came up before her and she, and she said, well, um, you know, there's plenty of evidence that you're guilty, um, but you know what, I'm feeling kind, so uh, I'm just going to let you go. <laughs> that would be a gross miscarriage of justice. And equally, I think we would all think it were right if, if God existed that he would impose the right penalty on the oppressor and the abuser and the warlord and everyone else. The trouble with this is, of course, that if it's true that we all stand to give an account of our lives before God, then it's only fair that we will be held accountable for our sin as well. This is the danger Jesus is speaking about. You know, you, you point a finger at the guy in the mirror and he points right back, right? He says, actually, I, I love you. I'm laying my, life down before, laying my life down for you to rescue you from the great danger of facing the consequence of your sin. The cross was Jesus paying the price, taking the penalty. He literally was exchanging places with us, paying the price of guilt instead of us. In, in chapter 3 of John, Jesus was trying to explain it to a religious guy. And he said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. In other words, won't pay the penalty of what they have done, but they will have eternal life. God didn't send his son, he's talking about himself, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, to rescue the world through him. So I've come to believe that there is compelling objective evidence that God exists. I've come to believe that, that God deeply loves me as evidenced by the fact that he would be willing to lay down his life in my place. Finally, I want to talk about the fact that there is experiential evidence. That actually not only God exists, not only does he love us, but actually he's made a way that we can know him. So when I was a little boy in school, I'm sure like most of you, all of you I expect, I learned about the theory of gravity. 
I, I began to understand scientifically why it is that my feet stay rooted to the ground, why I don't just go floating off. And, and I learned, I understood that if I was to go out of the, out of the, uh, the atmosphere, out into space, then I would experience weightlessness. The effects of gravity would be much less profound on me there, and I would kind of have this strange, bizarre experience of being weightless and floating around. Now, I am fully intellectually convinced that that is the case. I've, I've read books about it. I've been in lessons about it. I understand it, at least to a very simple level. I've seen videos of it happening. I, I, I require no more persuasion that this principle is true. But what I can't say is that I have experienced it. I don't have experiential evidence that it's true. I've no doubt it is true, but I, I, I haven't personally experienced it. If I was to go and speak to Tim Peake or, or another astronaut, actually, they could tell me from a very different perspective. They could probably explain the objective evidence much better than I can, but they could also tell me what it is to be weightless. They could try and articulate the, the, the experience and the sensation and, and the knowledge of, of, of being in that environment in a way that I probably never will. So actually, one of the most audacious claims of Christianity is not just that God exists, but that actually He's made a way that, that we can know Him personally for ourselves. In chapter 17, Jesus had, earlier on, He'd been talking about eternal life. He said, yeah, I paid the price so people can have eternal life. And then He goes on to explain what He meant by eternal life. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, he's praying to God, they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said that actually eternal life isn't just a matter of living forever or going to heaven when we die, as wonderful as that is. He says actually to be truly alive, to come alive on the inside is that we know God, that we can have a relationship with him. When I was an agnostic teenager, I, the, the first thing that really opened my mind to the possibility there might be someone there was, was, was meeting other people. There's a, a number of kind of the other kids and, and particularly one of my teachers. And they were really unlike anybody else I'd ever met before. They, they talked about Jesus as if they knew him as a person, but he was kind of interacting in their day-to-day -day lives in, in ways that was just utterly astonishing sometimes. And it, it kind of started to mess with my head a bit. And then there was the way they described, they would say literally having God come and live inside their hearts. I'd, I'd never heard anyone say anything like that before. And then they, they, they talked, they had a phrase, they described it as being filled with the Holy Spirit. I was pretty ignorant of what was in the Bible. I didn't even really understand there was a Holy Spirit, much less that He was God. Um, but the more I heard and the more they explained to me, the more there was a stirring and a thirsting in me to know this for myself. In chapter 7 of John, Jesus is talking to a great crowd of people. Verse 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty, he's talking about that kind of soul thirst that we have within us. If anyone is thirsty, 
come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, just like the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow up from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So I ended up going to this uh, small group. We'd call it a connect group now, I suppose. We didn't have cells in those days. Um, and it was basically just a place where we would go and, and bombard our group leader with questions. It was, it was ask God on steroids, really. We, we all had questions, and we weren't afraid to share them. And uh, I'd gone, there was, there was about 10 of us, I think, in the group who, uh, out of the dozen who weren't really Christians yet. And... Um, I've been going to this thing for for months, sort of sitting on the fence, asking my questions, and something very strange began to happen, that the more I went to this thing, the more I felt a drawing, a thirsting on my heart to know this God that they were speaking about. I, I felt strangely stirred. I felt there was a joy welling up in me like nothing I'd ever experienced, and Looking back on it now, I realize that was the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Just like Jesus said I would be, I was thirsty. That's as good a word as I can find to explain it. And there was this incredible longing in me to know God for myself. I kind of wanted to do something about it. I wanted to let God in. I wanted to to experience Him like some of these other people were. But to be honest, I was incredibly nervous. I'd never prayed a prayer in my life before that didn't have an expletive in it, I think, at least one that didn't begin, Our Father who art in heaven. And um, I, I didn't really know what to do. I, uh, God, you know, come on, what? I, I don't know. And so I agreed with my group leader, my, my best mate at the time, that uh, we were going to come back to the group next week and that he, he would just help us and just lead us in, in praying just putting our faith in Jesus and just inviting God to come and, and show himself and reveal himself to us. And I remember, I, I possibly shared this, I don't know, I remember um, I was standing the night before, uh, I, I, I'm, I think I was uh, getting changed after a hockey match, and I was just there silently in my head, I wasn't praying it out loud, but I was just so overwhelmed with a desire to know God, and just quietly in silence, I, I was praying, God, I believe in you, God, I I give my life to you. Would, you. would you come and fill my heart? I want to know the Holy Spirit. And, and I remember there in that place, in that locker room, after hockey, just being flooded with the most incredible joy and peace and what can only be described as the beautiful presence of God. I thought, oh no, I've, I've, I've jumped the gun. I've done it too early. Like Everyone's going to know. <laughs> Some of them did, actually. I remember going home that night, and my mum and dad were like, what's got into you? Like, I was just grinning like a Cheshire cat. And, and so I, I did turn up at the group the next day, and we prayed properly with the group leader. And, <laughs> and he just led us really simply. First of all, he just helped us just to say sorry, to confess the things that, that we were ashamed of, things that we'd done. Thankfully, we didn't have to do it out loud. It was a pretty horrible list. But as I confessed it to God, actually, I had the most profound sense of forgiveness and love in that moment. God wasn't condemning me. There was just that amazing forgiveness that comes from the cross washing me. And then we prayed, just, just, just letting Jesus come and, and just surrendering every aspect of our life to Him. 
And finally, we pray to be filled with the Spirit. And by now, I, I could hardly speak. I was just overcome by laughter and tears, and thankfully, so did everybody else. Otherwise, it would have been quite embarrassing. Um, in that moment, I knew what I was here on earth for. I knew what my life was about. I knew actually whatever else I did in the world, whatever else I went for or strived for, I, I wanted to know this God. I wanted a relationship with this God. And, you know, I'm not going to stand here and say I had every single one of my questions answered at that point. I was still, I still came with my questions and I still, well, what about this and what about science and what about, but there was an experiential reality in that moment which transcends getting high or whatever you might want to compare it to. There's a deep reality, more real really than anything else I'd known, that he's there. And he remains with me. Should we stand together? Just, um, time's almost gone, but it'd be great if the band could just come back. And I just want to, if you're not used to praying, just, just humor me for a moment. I'd love just to pray for all of you guys and, and with all of you guys. And Maybe there's some of you here and you're kind of looking in. Maybe you're kind of back where I was and you're, maybe you've got lots of questions. Maybe you're pretty cynical about it. Maybe you're just, maybe you've got just some sincere thoughts. Maybe this is true. I think a really good way to start, wow, a really good way to start, or just, just get hold of that John's Gospel. Most of what I shared this morning has come out of this, this tiny little biographical book of that John wrote, one of Jesus' friends. And I just encourage you, we, we talk about being open-minded, don't we? I think there's something about being open-hearted that actually we're kind of reading and saying, I, I don't necessarily know that this is all right. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know where I think. But God, if you're in this somehow, will you just show me it? Will you show me where it's at? And maybe there's... Maybe there's some of you here this morning, actually, you've, you've actually, you've been around for a while, like you've been knocking around City Church or around the things of faith for a little while, and you've come to that place a bit like I have, where you're like, actually, I, I need to take a step, but I'm not quite sure what to do. And um, just as the band begins to play, we're going to go into a song in a moment, but I'm just going to pray I'm not going to get you to do anything. You I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Or, but I'm just going to give you some words. And um, they're kind of words which you could use later on your own. Or maybe you just want to pray them in the quietness of your heart now, like I did while I was getting changed from hockey. And it's just a response to Jesus to say, actually, I, I, I've been experiencing something. I've been investigating something that I want it to become a level more real now I want actually to let you in so I'm just going to pray if you want to make this prayer your own then just in the quietness of your heart you can, you can pray with me dear God I thank you for showing me you I thank you for showing me you even when there's times I didn't believe in you thought you weren't real Thank you for loving me so much, even though I've messed up, even though I've been selfish, I've lived for myself.
thank you that you love me so much to even die for me on the cross. And I just thank you for that. I just receive that right now. Please forgive every every mess I've ever made, every wrong thing I've ever done, every way I've ever hurt anyone. And I pray right now, would you just come into my heart? Would you come and make yourself so real to me, more real than the, the air I'm breathing? Would you just come and reveal that love in my heart so that I can know you? Amen. Should we sing together?